Hi everyone, welcome to Cafe Curiosity, a podcast about experience and discovery. Today we are off to Zimbabwe for a story called Finding Mermaids, written by Chido Muchemwa. Now, mermaids have always been very mystical, scary, and I guess from the other world, the spiritual world, things that we don't really like to talk about because it's just somewhere else. And I know growing up, for example, that, yeah, I mean, you mention a mermaid known as Njuzu in Shona and, you know, we'd be scared. Like, I would probably not sleep that night because I'd be worried that the mermaids might come to take me. This is a wonderful story that explores not only mermaids, but really that thing about loss. You'll see our protagonist, Rudo, I guess, grappling and dealing with the loss of a father who she had become somewhat estranged from. Probably starting to give too much away, but here's a little bit about the author. Chidomu Chemwa is a Zimbabwean writer currently living in Canada. Her work has previously appeared in the Baltimore Review, Cantheus, Catapult, Humber Literary Review, and Prism International, amongst others. She has been shortlisted twice for the Short Story Day Africa Prize and placed second in the Humber Literary Review's 2020 Emerging Writers Fiction Contest. She is a 2023 Miles Moreland Scholar and she has an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Wyoming. Find links to her published stories on her website, chidomuchemwa.com. And if you want more Njuzu, check out her story, The Captive River, published in Augur issue 4.2. We'll also put that link in the show notes for this episode. And now, let's listen to the story. Mermaids? Who the fuck still believes in mermaids? I said it under my breath, but still glanced at my mother in the passenger's seat. I shouldn't have been concerned. She had fallen asleep again. Since the funeral, she had mostly slept, snatched into long sleep slumbers whenever there was silence. I remember reading once that when small children are worried, they sleep because it's the only way they can deal with their lack of control over the situation. Maybe that's what mum was doing. 38 days before, my father, Baba, had died. 39 days before, I had left America with an expired visa, knowing that I wouldn't be going back. And now, here I was, headed to Manikaland, with the mother who had never supported this journalism nonsense of mine, in search of mermaids for a story. There had been a series of mysterious drownings in one of the small villages. The villagers thought mermaids were responsible. I was to interview one of the residents, who had apparently been returned by the mermaids 30 years before. They weren't mermaids, really. At least not like friendly Ariel and her singing crab. These were Shona mermaids, Njuzu, vicious, powerful, half-human, half-fish creatures who lived in the deep waters, communing with the spirit world and waiting to capture unwary humans who ventured near. I doubted their existence, but I had accepted the assignment when an old friend offered me a chance to write for his fledgling magazine. When we reached Chemvura village, 
All the small children ran up to the car smiling. They rushed to my door and squealed when I gave them sweets that I had brought for them. I picked one up, a small pretty girl, but placed her back on the ground immediately when I encountered a wet bottom. When mom opened her door, the kids ran to welcome her too. Women emerged from the huts and slowly walked towards us, more wary than their children. I'm looking for love more, I said. Rudo, mom hissed. Greet them properly. I rolled my eyes, but then extended my hands to shake each of the women, curtsying slightly. How are you? We are fine if you are fine too. We are fine. Then we are fine too. After what felt like 10 minutes of inquiring how they were, and how we were, and how the children were, and how the crops and goats were, I finally said what I wanted to say. I've come from Harare and I am looking for love more. Love more was my contact in Chimfura. I had spoken to him on the phone a couple of times over the last week. The self-appointed village elder, all 26 years of him, had told me that he would be my guide during my two days in the village. But the stream of messages sitting unreplied to on my phone suggested he hoped for more than just guiding. Eventually, he came bounding up to me like an over-eager puppy. He was vaguely attractive in that rural, sweaty kind of way. Tall and muscular like a man who spent a lot of time in the field. My sister, you've come, he said, shaking my hand vigorously. Mother, how are you? Mum looked bemused as Lovemore shook her hand, smiling like he had known her all his life. Come now, I'll introduce you to everyone. As he shepherded us around, I couldn't help feeling appropriated. By the second house, we had become my visitors. By the fifth, my relatives? I found it irritating that he did all the talking with my mother and I barely got out a hello before he whisked us off to the next home. When we got to his mother's house, he took me by the hand and said to his mother, here is your daughter-in-law. It was said in a joking manner, but it was obvious that Lovemore wouldn't mind if this was true. But I said nothing. Mum had chuckled at this introduction. Lovemore tried to convince me that there was nothing that I could learn from the villagers that I couldn't learn from him, but I insisted on meeting the men. So as the sun set... Lovemore accompanied me to the centre of the village where the men were gathered around a fire. Lovemore took a seat on one of the free stools, but I sat on the ground. Even this returning diaspora knew better than to challenge rural sensibilities by sitting on the stool like I was equal to the men, at least not when I wanted something from them. I could see the disapproving looks directed towards my skinny jeans and sleeveless top. Lovemore began another round of extended greeting formalities. I felt like I had been through this routine a million times since I got back. A month after my father's death, visitors were still streaming in to pay their respects. They expressed their condolences only to my mother, always asking her first how she was. But with me, they sat back. I had to ask them how they were. I had to say how sorry I was for their loss, even though I was the one who had lost a father. 
It was silly, but I did it because mother expected it. Since Baba's death, she had become more thoughtful about cultural practices and making sure that I conducted myself like a properly behaved Shona daughter. When Lovemore finally finished his introduction, I asked my questions. What do you think happened to the girls? I said. They were taken, said one of the men. They drowned, said Lovemore. I ignored him. Taken by what? No one responded. Do you think something pulled them into the river? Still, nothing. Do you believe in Juzu? The crowd became restless. Fairy tales, Lovemore mumbled. Fairy tales, said one of the older men. Juzu are not fairy tales. Who are you, I said. The man looked sharply at me. I guess I could have been more respectful. Munemo, I've lived here for 20 years. And what do you think happened to the girls? Munemo looked around nervously at the other men, mermaids. There was grumbling amongst the men and some head shaking. I know to an Americano like you, it might seem improbable. Even here in the village, the youngsters think that those of us who believe are ridiculous. A smattering of sniggers. From the corner of my eye, I saw love more smirking. But it's mermaids, I tell you. People won't say it out loud as if the Njuzu might hear us calling their names and emerge out of the water to take more girls. But it's happening anyway. We should be grateful that the mermaids have chosen our village. At this last bit, the grumbling devolved into shouting. Grateful, Munemo, said Lavmo. You want us to be grateful. This here is the epitome of rural passivity. You never want to change your lives. Always ready to accept whatever lot you receive, even when you could change it. Kudakwashe, right? Yes, Lavmo. Kudakwashe. We should be grateful. Grateful? I said finally managing to get myself heard over the crowd. Yes, that they've chosen our village as the place to find the next generation of witch doctors. I was still confused. They say that mermaids take the girls underwater to teach them about the spirit world and the magic they need to be a witch doctor, Lovemore said. I should have been grateful, but a part of me was tired of having my culture explained to me. Yes, Munemo said. It is for our own benefit. I think the mermaids are just looking out for us, you know. They can't just show up and say, can we have your daughter for a month or two? Some people would kill them or at the very least trap them given half a chance. Anyway, who would agree to that? We all want our daughters to get married so that our crawls fill up with cows and our yards with grandchildren. Witch doctors don't get married. But we need them, and the mermaids make sure we always have them. And how many of your daughters would you volunteer? Lovemore asked. Which one of those six would you give to the mermaids? None. So shut your mouth about things you don't understand. Things I don't understand? What do I not understand? Everyone in this village knows that you only need to talk to Richard Zokera 
and she'll tell you, mermaids are real, whether you like it or not. You only need to look at Richard Zokera's power to see that. Hi, Sukawena, Rudo, let's go. Love more thundered away, and I had to run to catch up. Villagers, they'll always look for the impossible before they accept the obvious. Mermaids, honestly, this is why Chimvura is so backwards. Five girls who can't swim turn up dead by the river. Do the villagers think it's crocodiles? Do they think the girls might have drowned? No, the only possible explanation is bloody mermaids. Who is Richard Zokera? I said. Richard Zokera means it will return. Richard Zokera is the name the village gave to the woman you're here to interview. She sits there in her hut by the river, and apparently she's the evidence of the power of mermaids. She conjures minor tricks. She's a fraud. The look on his face discouraged further questioning, but I couldn't help myself. Fraud? He stopped as we reached his mother's gate. She killed my father. I said nothing. I was still working in Motare back then, he continued. I rushed home in response to a frantic call from my mother, saying my father was dying. I wanted to take him to the hospital, but mother insisted on going to Richard Zokera instead. The woman filled the room with smoke and chanted as she sprinkled water over my father's prone body. My father coughed violently for a while, but then fell silent and I knew he was gone. We still took him to the hospital, where he didn't last the hour. The doctors said it was emphysema. I'm sorry. For what? The ignorance of villagers? None of it matters anyway. She'd probably still be sprinkling water over his dead body as if it could bring him back if I hadn't dragged the man out. I wanted to say I understand. I wanted to tell him that I too had arrived home too late to be of any use to my dying father. That I had spent the last three months of his life refusing to talk to him, fearing that he would try to say goodbye, but insisting I would soon be on my way home. That finally, mother had said, if you want to see him alive, get on the plane now. That even then, I had dallied for another couple of days before finally departing, and that, when I was somewhere over the Atlantic, my father had died. I wanted to tell him, but instead I slipped my hand into his and repeated the words I had heard so many times these last 38 days. I am sorry. We stood there in silence for a few minutes before he let go of my hand, and we finally went into the kitchen. My love more had already made dinner. Apparently, she was taking this whole Murora business seriously because she had killed a rooster and it looked like half the bird was on my plate. It was delicious, but I struggled with the sadza. It felt like there was grit in it, but every time I was ready to give up, mum glared at me and I continued to force the sadza down my throat until my plate was clear. Love more smiled at the plate as if there was meaning in it. Mum and I were given a small hut to sleep in. We laid out our blankets and pillows on the floor on opposite sides of the hut. Twice I blew out the candle by mistake as I aired out my blankets. Mother was amused but said nothing. Then suddenly she was singing a song that my dead grandmother used to sing before she went to bed. 
it wasn't just that mum was singing, but that she was singing, The Lord is my shepherd. Mum had never been religious. She would drop us off at Sunday school on her way to work and return to pick us up when she knew that mass was well and truly over and the judgmental nuns had gone to lunch. And here she was singing the favorite hymn of her mother-in-law she had never liked. For a second, I thought I might join in, but then decided that singing hymns by candlelight at night felt a little too much like calling death into your home. I slipped into my blankets and turned away from mum. After a few minutes, she was silent and I thought she had fallen asleep. I could not sleep. I kept trying to find a comfortable position, but that was impossible on a cold cement floor. While I was all smiles when we were shown to our very own pole and Dacha hut, once we were inside, I bristled at the inconvenience. This was exactly the type of thing I did not miss in America. Eventually, I lay on my back, planning the next day's interview as I listened to the rain being swallowed by the thatched roof. I wondered what the witch doctor, the Nganga, would say about mermaids. I couldn't help but think of the last Ganga I had seen. The day after Baba's funeral, I had been dragged to see a different Ganga back in Mashingo, where Baba had grown up. We had gone to the spiritual healer to perform Gata, a ceremony when the Ganga consults the spirits to find out what killed your loved one. When I'd questioned the point of this trip, seeing as we knew it was prostate cancer that killed Baba, I had been told our culture says munu haangofa, a person doesn't just die, there is always someone responsible. It was just a matter of finding out who the killer was. We had gathered in the hut, my mother, my father's three brothers and I. The nganga picked up the goat bones that he would throw to see what the spirit said and he blew on them like they were dice. He shook them in his hands and he began to shake. His eyes lost focus as he entered a trance. He began to make strange noises, like he was dry heaving as the bones started to shake faster. Suddenly, he stopped. He opened his eyes, but there was no recognition there. It was like something else had taken his place. He turned to me and offered the bones to me. We were all taken aback. You mean to give them to me, right? They belong to me, said Baba's eldest brother. He reached over as if to grab the bones, but the Nganga growled like a rabid beast. Once again, he proffered them to me. I looked over to my mother. She had fallen asleep. I turned back to the healer and held out my hands. He dropped the bones into them. Chukucha, I shook the bones. Kanda, I dropped them in front of me on the grass mat. The healer moved the bones around with his stick as he read them, moaning as he deciphered meaning. There was no good news in those bones. But who ever found good news on a witch hunt? The healer sat back, wailed like a wounded dog and fell silent. He shut his eyes. When he reopened them, he was back. He pushed forward his small wooden plate and waited. I didn't know what the gesture meant. Money, my uncle said. I hastily pulled out a $20 note from the small wad in my bra and put it in the plate. From the Nganga's gleeful look, I knew it was too much. He began to speak, 
and he appeared to be addressing me alone. I spoke to the spirits. Your ancestors are not happy. You broke your father's heart. The man pulled out a pouch of snuff from somewhere in his many animal hides and took a big sniff before replacing the pouch. What kind of child leaves and never comes back? You children, we send you to these foreign lands to work so that you can take care of us. Mochonerako. The white man calls it cancer, but its real name is grief. Grief? I wondered if Richard Zokera would make the same abstract claims, if she would so pointedly ask for money. You know, I never learned how to swim. My mother's voice startled me. You didn't? I said as if I didn't already know. I used to watch your aunts and uncles happily splashing around in the river on the farm, but I never joined in. Why not? I was scared of the mermaids. In the distance, thunder rumbled. When I was seven or so, your uncle Simba told me that mermaids live in the lakes but sometimes swim up to the river in search of girls. They grab unsuspecting girls and drag them down to their caves near the bottom of the lake to teach them about the spiritual world so that they could become witch doctors. That was only if no one cried. But if they cried about your loss, the mermaids would kill you. I didn't want to be a witch doctor. Anyway, you know your grandmother. At the first hint that I was missing, she'd have been wailing at the top of a hill, so I figured it was best to stay out of water altogether. We laughed. It's strange, isn't it? I said. How grandma can be so generous with her tears when the two of us never cry in public. And the way she insists that there's something wrong with you if you don't cry the way she does. Remember at your father's funeral, the way she kept imploring me to wail. Why can't you weep for your own husband? Imagine your own mother accusing you of witchcraft at your husband's funeral. She was one step away from saying, I killed him, I tell you. All because you couldn't shed a tear. I couldn't shed a tear. Maybe I was hoping they would send him back. Richard Zokera turned out to be an anti-climax. When I entered her hut, it took a few seconds for my eyes to adjust to the darkness of the room and the smoke. Across from the door, Richard Zokera sat on a grass mat. She wore a headband made from goatskin and had a cowhide pinned around her shoulder. But under the hide was a black system of a down t-shirt with sleeves ripped off. I knelt on the cement floor, clapping my capped hands slowly, eyes cast down. Rita Zokera shook the stick in her right hand. Mwanangu, chicha netza, what's wrong? Rita Zokera, I'm a journalist and I'm investigating the drownings. I wondered what you might know about them. What have they told you? The villagers, they said it might be mermaids. Is that all they said? They said you disappeared too. Her eyes lit up. They said the mermaids took you and that's how you became Richard Zokera. Do you believe in the mermaids? In the spirits? I felt tired. So very tired and weary. Tired of missing America. Tired of these villagers and their bloody mermaids. Tired of having to relearn how to be a good woman in Zimbabwe. But most importantly, tired of this burden of grief. Tired of missing and tired of trying to understand this person my mother had become. Rudo, 
Do you believe in spirits? How did Jicha Zokera know my name? I think grief drives people crazy, a madness so foreign that they can't see how ordinary life could explain it, so they look to the spirits. The words felt empty, but I knew that was what she wanted to hear. Richard Zokera smiled as she shook her head. We cannot know it all. I found my mother by the river. Nearby, the children screamed as they played tag, but mum seemed oblivious to them. She stared at the water rushing past as if she was looking for something, as if she was ready to jump in and follow it. Wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you, Chido, for writing those beautiful words and taking us into this world of Njuzu mermaids. One of the things that came out for me is, is something that when we were growing up, we live in, in town or in the city and then you have to go to the village. And when you, when you do go, there is this hyper-focus on your manners and the culture and being able to greet people properly. When I was younger, it was really weird and awkward. Now it's just like something that I really, really like love. I went to a Lobola ceremony where all these cultural practices on steroids and it was so amazing and I was like oh I wish I could just like have an opportunity to be immersed in this. Little did I know when I was younger that I would live so far away from Zimbabwe and not have the opportunity to dip into it in the way that we did then. So really cool to have those memories come back as I, I went through or read the story. The other thing that struck me was Rudo's grief, her lost, floating, along feeling in her grief and trying to figure herself out. Imagine having been in the States without a visa, probably trying really hard to make a go of her journalism career and hopefully get papers. And then your dad gets sick when you haven't fulfilled the great dream of your parents having sent you to the promised land, as it were, to become great. A lot of feelings in there around just fulfilling your potential, uh, not being there or not being able to face your dad as he is dying, that he dies on your way home. And then here you are unable to go back to America and having to make the most of what you can in Zimbabwe, which was not what you wanted. Richard Zokera, the, the, the Nganga, or traditional healer. I, I really dislike the word witch doctor because I think it immediately vilifies something that is just like Western medicine in that you can use Western medicine for good and for bad. I don't see why we have to say, you know, witch doctors. It's just so evil and bad and nothing good can come from it. I don't know enough about it to, <laughs> to say whether it's good or bad. But I also believe that people who are traditional healers have a place and something valid to say. And that as with anything we do as human beings, intentions can be good and they can be bad. Here is what Chido had to say about what inspired the story. 
Like so many of my stories with supernatural elements, Finding Mermaids was actually inspired by an article that I read in the Kwaeza newspaper. It was an article about girls who were disappearing in a remote village in Zimbabwe. And the villagers were trying to come up with explanations for where these girls were going. Some people thought that maybe there was a serial killer in the area. Some people thought, you know what? Everyone wants to go to Harare. Maybe they're just running away to the big city. But there was one person who was interviewed who was adamant that they were being taken by Njuzu. And it just made me think about loss and how sometimes blaming things you can't see makes loss easier to bear. That said, I also just wanted to push up against this idea of... uh, friendly mermaids and say you know what we have mermaids too in Zimbabwe but they are not Ariel and Disney right like they're mean and they're dangerous and I wanted to bring that into the story as well yes thank you thank you I think when we think of mermaids we definitely think of Ariel and we think of happy movies and cute songs to sing along to thank you so much Shido for that wonderful wonderful story And that's it for our episode. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I always love some of the comments and the interaction that I have with you. So please hit me up on Instagram at Lorraine Mutambiranwa. And of course, share the good news of Cafe Curiosity with everyone you know. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And our home is cafecuriosity.co.za. Until next week, I wish you a fantastic time of experiencing the best our world has to offer with open-hearted curiosity. Till then, bye-bye.